Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Crux. I'm here with my colleague, uh, Gary Sheffer. Hello, Gary. Hey, Mike. Uh, Lots of interesting items in the news. Uh, First up, we have yet another candidate (laughs) uh, for the Democratic presidential nomination for 2020. You'd think they would be fewer, uh, you know, people dropping out, not being added. Well, we lost a few, you know, now, (laughs) now now we're retrenching. But it brought to mind, you know, 32 years ago. Uh, The media, as they watched the Democratic field of candidates for 1988, which included the likes of actually Joe Biden, Al Gore, Dick Gephardt, Bruce Babbitt, Paul Simon, Jesse Jackson, and Mike Dukakis, uh, they dubbed the field as Gary Hart and the Seven Dwarfs. There are many more dwarfs this time around. And I might add back then, actually, one of those dwarfs Dwarfs, actually got the nomination and Mike Dukakis, who's governor here in Massachusetts. Does it make sense for Michael Bloomberg to enter the fray? Does it make sense now? And what does Bloomberg have to communicate in order to have a chance of winning this nomination? You know, I'll answer it in two different ways. Is it good that Mike Bloomberg and his ideas are in the race? Yes. Obviously, he understands uh, the global economy. Mm-hmm. He understands technology. And he's, uh, he's a contrast to Trump in many ways in that he's a businessman who's succeeded and succeeded wildly. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, just amazingly. I mean, the Bloomberg terminals are just oh, a license to cre- print money. He right? created <laughs> something that there was a real need for. Exactly. So uh, I think it's good that he's in the race. Uh, I just think at this point, it's probably too late. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how you build. He's got a lot of money, Mike. Mm -hmm. But how do you build these local organizations that you really need? And if you look at somebody like Buttigieg, who's been on the ground, he's all in on Iowa. Yeah. And so he's got a huge organization there. um, And he's still only at 7 or 8%. And uh, so I, I just wonder whether it's possible. Now, we also have recent experiences of billionaire business people. Uh, including Howard Schultz, yeah. who uh, did a test balloon, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it, it didn't go well. It popped. So, it popped <laughs> yeah, really quickly, really quickly. I think Bloomberg is a better candidate, and he's been in, uh, obviously, the fight before in uh, as mayor of New York City. So I hope his ideas get uh, – my answer is I hope his ideas get some airing, Yeah, but I'm afraid it's too late. Yeah, so in my normal instinct would mm-hmm. be that it is too late. Mm-hmm. We've seen other candidates in other years jump in yep. late. I mean, classically, even going back to 1976, I remember when Governor Jerry Brown and oh, right. Senator Frank Church yeah. both jumped in late. Right. Yeah. And uh, as a consequence of them jumping in late and both winning some late primaries, primaries yeah. actually was the first time in a long time that the Democrats had gone into a convention yeah. uh, without the score fully settled. Right. Uh, but th- this year, you know, you had more than 20 candidates yeah. jump in at the beginning. And I think it was hard for uh, the Bloomberg team to see how they sort of would navigate. Yeah. Now that the field is has, has yeah. thinned a bit, and now that there's some concern, is there someone who's moderate enough? He may actually have been smart by missing out on being of one of the dwarfs. Exactly. And, That's a good and, point. You know, and, and, and might actually be able to have uh, a bigger mark yeah. than he might have if he had joined earlier. Yeah, and, and I forgot one of the other billionaires in the race, Tom Steyer, yeah. who hasn't gotten traction, and he has presented himself just as I uh, presented Bloomberg, which was, I've run businesses successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas President Trump, you've taken yeah. large ca- uh, mounds of cash and turned them into smaller mounds of cash, right? Yeah. Um, but, but but you know what? I think earlier you hit you, yeah. you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Is the difference with Bloomberg is he's also been a politician. Exactly. He's also had to run a city government, yes. the largest city government in the United States. So it will be interesting. Yeah, to and see maybe what he the has hardest. Maybe the hardest elected job in the country, running New York City. Absolutely. And he he did it well by many accounts. Yeah. So so the the next item I have is, uh, you know, Facebook took down 
Breitbart mm -hmm. for posting what it claimed was the name of a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. uh, the White House whistleblower. The Mike. White House whistleblower. Yeah. That's right. So, so Facebook is deleting all content that claims to reveal the identity of the whistleblower who actually triggered the impeachment inquiry into uh, President Trump. Right. Uh, the company has supposedly a strict policy against outing informants and activists. Uh, given its recent pronouncements, though, not to edit or pull political content, how should we view this? I think Facebook is all over the map. Mm -hmm. I, I really do, and, and it's a great company, and I respect them very much, but it, it can't decide where it stands on these things. It mm -hmm. seems to, it's almost one of those people, Mike, you, you've run across in your career. The last person they talk to is how they make a decision. <laughs> and, it, and it seems like Facebook is somewhat like that. You had to know from the start when it started this news feed that Breitbart wasn't a real news source. Yeah. Regardless of what where your politics are on this, it conveys and it perpetuates these conspiracy theories that have long been debunked. And, and so it's not a real journalism organization. It's an advocacy organization. So by including them from the beginning, they were setting themselves up for failure. So I would put it back in your court here is, so Fox News, um, the broad television, has had a couple of contributors or guests yeah. on who've also said the name alleged of the alleged whistleblower. So what should Fox News do as a result of that? Here, your Facebook has the opportunity to pull this news source, but what, how should we treat all of this confidentiality for this whistleblower? Yeah, think about first that. of all, it's very difficult to police when yes, you've yeah. got a small army of people who are out there yes. insistent on getting this name out. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the sad part is we don't know if that's the right name. Right. And the other sad part is you could be putting somebody at risk. Yep. And uh, the challenge in all of this is I, I don't know how you manage it. Yeah. You know, I think that as a news organization, if you truly are about being insistent about living up to the measure of mm -hmm. the law in terms of yep. the whistleblower uh, law, then I would uh, I would say that you've got to find a way to, to bleep the name. You've yeah, got exactly. to find a way to interject yeah. and, uh, and make comment that we don't really know who this yeah. individual is. I, I did see that one person who has been identified potentially as the whistleblower and has come out and said, I'm not the whistleblower, right. has received death threats. Uh, so so th there are real consequences absolutely. here to this this kind of behavior. I, I want to say one more thing about Facebook. I, I did read something this morning about Campbell Brown, mm -hmm. former NBC yeah. correspondent and anchor, and who now works at Facebook. Yeah. And uh, she is very supportive of an organization. I, I believe it's a not-for-profit, The 74, which focuses on education issues. Very supportive of Secretary of Education DeVos and some other uh, sort of conservative ideas that's been very critical of Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. So Campbell's involved in this newsfeed thing, Mike, that we're talking about here and overseeing it. And yet um, her personal beliefs are very much on display mm -hmm. from a political standpoint. So that's when I say Facebook is sort of has to make a decision. Are we a media organization or are we just a platform? I, I don't think they can continue to try to be both. Right. And that's where they get themselves in trouble. Yeah. It, it, I, I would say now's the time to call for a huddle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Another item in the news, which is interesting from a reputation management standpoint, is that the management consulting firm McKinsey and Company is apparently Yikes, under yeah. uh, federal criminal investigation. That's criminal, not civil. Over the way it ad advised uh, bankruptcy clients, uh, prosecutors are looking into whether McKinsey put its profits ahead of clients' best interests and used its influence over the companies in violation of Chapter 11 bankruptcy rules to guide business to other large clients or, or itself. In some ways, uh, the case that really goes to the heart of you know who most of us have thought yeah. McKinsey is yeah. as kind of a, a trusted advisor. Is this an existential threat to McKinsey's reputation or business? And if you were counseling them, Gary, yeah, what might be your best advice right now? Well, I, I have to say that, you know, these organizations are quite resilient. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm sure McKinsey, being as smart as they are, trying to get their arms around it, I do think it's existential because it goes to the trust and credibility of the organization. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you you and I both run small businesses. Mm-hmm. If anything like this showed up or, you know, from a non-disclosure standpoint, anything, it's your stock and trade. And when it goes away, no one's going to hire you. That's so right. I, in that sense, I do think it's existential and they got have to get around it. I would be as disclosive as possible. Mm-hmm. I would self-report yep. as quickly as they can. Uh, independent uh, investigations um, are a quick way to do this, even though there's already a federal investigation um, but I'd start inside, Mike. I'd yeah. start with the team. Bring some experts in. Yeah, exactly. Take a look at it. Completely. Independent review. Yes. And and make sure everybody inside the organization, and if indeed this was going on, that it is not acceptable. And uh, it is, in many ways, a threat to the sustainability of their business model. Yeah. At the end of the day, all you have is your reputation. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Another item that caught my eye was a study from the Migration Policy Center. This was really interesting. Uh, you yeah. know, as we're going into Veterans Day, and, and I grew up around military people and mil- around military bases. My father worked for the Army Air Force Exchange Service. Uh, my dad and his uh, five brothers wow. were, uh, were you know, their all own, served. All, their own company. <laughs> their own company. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, and even during my early professional life, spent a lot of time around military yeah. personnel and actually served for a number of years on a board called yeah. the U.S. Global uh, Leadership Coalition, which is an interesting grouping that also includes uh, a lot of retired military brass yes. admirals and generals. Uh, so I'm always keen to honor people's service, thank them for their service, Absolutely. especially uh, around the time of Veterans Day. But this particular study caught my eye uh, because I'm also very much interested in the immigration issue. Yes. In fact, I've had family members who've immigrated to the United States from Cuba. Uh, but this really perked me up, and that is that 2.4 million veterans, or roughly 13%, of all U.S. military veterans are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. And then when you actually look at the largest number of foreign-born immigrants who served in the U.S. military, by far, it's Mexico. Wow. That's just really extraordinary. Let's go build a wall, right? Exactly. And, Mike, is that that the current... Profile. That's the current profile. Okay. That, that's out of all wars. Okay. Okay. And it's true. I mean, you know, my dad served in Korea, and uh, my uh, uncles um, on my mother's side, who were first generation, um, served in the military uh, during that period as well. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the this is the shame mm-hmm. in many ways of our country right now. Yeah. Is. Um, when you look at the, the statistics around crime in this country, uh, the expectation might be that immigrants are causing, you know, a disproportionate share of it. And in fact, they commit fewer crimes than mm-hmm. I'm going to use the phrase America or the word mm-hmm. Americans. But that's the case. And the service to this country that immigrants provide and in um, a nation of immigrants in one way or the other um, should be remembered and particularly on something like Veterans Day. Absolutely. And and when you see it breaks my heart when I see these stories about folks who have served in the military currently whether Afghanistan or in, or in Iraq and they're being deported. Yeah. They've served honorably, they've they've uh, obviously uh, loved this country and uh, they're being deported for legal technicalities. Mm-hmm. Laws the law, I get yep. it. But there ought to be some um exception yeah. for for yeah. folks who've served. Yeah. I absolutely agree. So anyway, next we have a terrific uh, guest. Uh, He served under two presidents as uh, a a White House uh, official photographer, and he's also an alum of Boston University. Of BU, yeah, Pete Souza. So let's go to that, uh, that conversation with Pete. Our guest today on The Crux is one of the best-known and respected photographers in the world, and uh, his name is Pete Souza. Pete, uh, I was thinking about this, Pete, when we were uh, I was putting together this introduction. You've probably spent more time in the White House than almost anyone, uh, having been a photographer in both the Reagan and Obama White Houses, and I'll go through that here in a, in a minute. Pete's iconic photo from the Obama administration, where he uh, was the 
chief official White House photographer from January 2009 to January 2017. And I read in that time, Pete took as many as two million uh, photos uh, of the president and others. It te- his photos really tell an intimate story of the Obama presidency. And by the way, many of those photos are on the wall here at the BU College of Communication. Uh, I particularly like the ones of the family. Yeah. Uh, really just very personal and intimate and, and, and inspiring. And Pete, as I, I mentioned, was also an official White House photographer for five and a half years during the Reagan administration. Today, he is a best-selling author. His latest book, Shade, A Tale of Two Presidents, is now out in paperback with some 60 new pages. When first released in 2018, it debuted number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And we'll talk about Shade. It's really a portrait of presidential contrasts between the Obama and Trump administration. Uh, And another of Pete's books, Obama, An Intimate Portrait, is one of the best-selling photography books of all time. Pete's resume is really amazing. He previously was a news photographer who covered stories around the world for the Chicago Trib and three other newspapers. He was a freelancer for nine years, including for National Geographic. After 9-11, he was one of the first journalists to cover the fall of Kabul in Afghanistan after crossing the Hindu Kush Mountains by horseback and three feet of snow. Mm. And most importantly... Pete is a graduate of Boston University, the College of Communication, and is a recipient of the college's Distinguished Alumni Award. I should also mention that my daughter is a photographer, and um, I'm talking to one of her he- big heroes, Pete Souza. So, Pete, welcome to The Crux. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so let's start by talking about Shade, uh, the book I mentioned that's out in, in paperback. And it really does uh, present a stark contrast between I would say, to put it simply, the grace of President Obama, in many ways, the gracelessness of our <laughs> current president. Um, for example, in the book, you juxtapose a headline about President Trump banning refugees and citizens of Muslim countries with a photo of uh, President Obama kneeling among young refugees in Malaysia. So two questions. What prompted you to do a book that um, to do this book that's politically pointed? And was it any one thing that prompted you, Pete, to do this, or was it just a collection of actions that we've seen over the last two or three years? Well, really, the book first started on my Instagram account, where for you know more than a year I was uh, showing the contrast right. by posting images of President Obama with humorous captions, snarky captions, <laughs> but not necessarily referring to what had inspired them. You right. had to be paying attention to I the see. news in order to understand what my post was about. But after the craziness of that first year, meaning in 2017, I started thinking about maybe I need to put this into a book format just because I was afraid people were going to forget. We, we've become numb. Mm-hmm. Yes. To everything that's happening, and I and I looked at it as as a record, as putting it uh, in a book, so that there was a record of all the you know the craziness that had happened in the you know basically the first year and a half, two years. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in fact, I, I love actually some of your captions. Uh, <laughs> you know, so so, so I am a, a a frequent observer of your Instagram, which for our listeners has like over 2.1 million followers. I'm one of those followers. Uh, But for instance, I think uh, just the other day you posted a photo of President Obama saluting uh, military as he's about to board uh, the Marine One helicopter. And the caption reads, quid pro quo. If you let me on board, you can close the door. Uh, and, and then a week ago, you shared a, a, a photo of President Obama with Chancellor Angela Merkel. And the caption reads, when we didn't worry if the president of the United States was committing a crime during a conversation with another world yes, leader. exactly. So, so I love them. But I also know you grew up in a day when many photojournalists uh, were of the school that photos did not always need a caption, that the photos could speak for themselves. Um, In your mind, what's happened to society, to the presidency, to civility and politics that a more pointed approach is is really called for? I mean, I just think in the last almost three years, the the current president just disrespects, Mm -hmm. you know, the office of the 
mm-hmm. presidency. I mean, he's lying to us openly every day. Mm-hmm. It's documented that he's lying to us purposely mm-hmm. on Twitter and in his news conferences. He bullies people that disagree with him. Mm-hmm. And he just doesn't respect even the normal rules of behavior. I mean, yeah. he's calling the press the enemy of the people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the freedom of the press is the, one of the bedrock foundations of our country. Exactly. And for him to do that is really dangerous. Well, and I think you offer a unique perspective in the sense that you, I mean, you serve two White Houses, one Republican, one Democrat, Reagan and Obama. I guess one of the things I would be curious of is you're touring the country. Um, you're talking about your, your book, Shade. Um, I'm curious as to what kind of feedback do you get from audiences? Do they easily make comparisons between those two presidents and uh, and, and and Trump, who mm-hmm. sometimes question, you refer yeah. to as as Comrade Minus? <laughs> uh, and as we approach uh, 2020 and our next presidential election, how does your interaction with audiences throughout the country make you feel about America's future? First of all, I was I, I will say this: my commentary on Instagram is not partisan. I would not be doing this if you know Mitt Romney had been president of John McCain or John Kasich or Jeb Bush or right. a whole host of other Republicans. Because even though I would maybe disagree with their politics and policy, those are all individuals who respect other people and would have respected the office of the presidency. So my beef with Trump is that he just, you know, he disrespects people Mm -hmm. and he disrespects the office. And so I I don't want people to think that, you know, this this is a Democrat taking on a Republican. This has nothing. Right, right. And you worked for Reagan. Nothing to do with it. Yeah, right. What's that? And you worked for Reagan. I did work for Reagan. Hmm. Yeah, and I didn't necessarily always find myself, I guess probably most of the time, necessarily mm-hmm. find myself in, in agreement with his policies. But, mm-hmm. you know, I respected him as a human being. You know, so that's point one. Mm-hmm. You asked so many other questions. Yeah, yeah, well, the other like, question, I guess, is, is is what kind of vibe do you get from the audiences uh, yeah. as, as you go across So the in terms of the way I do my presentations now, I mean, obviously promoting this shade book, so mm-hmm. I throw a little bit of shade <laughs> at the start of my presentation mm-hmm. and try to explain to people why I do what I do. But the, 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 the majority of my talk is really an inside look at the Obama administration, at President Obama. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually try to leave people with some hope yeah. that we will, we will get through this. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to have lived through Watergate, and matter of fact, I was at BU when Watergate happened. Oh, interesting. And, um, you know, and I was alive when Kennedy was assassinated, and um, so I've seen some, you know, rocky times in our country, and we've always been able to overcome them, and I feel the same about this. It's pretty rocky while we're going through it, Mm -hmm. but I'm optimistic, uh, and I try to show that in in my talk. Mm -hmm. And it's it's done, Pete... uh, through the contrast, right, that you can present visually and personally about the, it sounds like the conduct of, of President Obama, obviously, vis-a-vis the current occupant of the White House. Well, there's a contrast in the beginning of my talk, and then I try to not, I mean, the, the contrast is probably in the back of everybody's mind right? As I'm, as I'm making my presentation. It's a visual presentation. I'm projecting images. Mm-hmm. And I think it's people cry because they they see how far we've fallen mm-hmm. right. by by seeing the way I you know the, the way President Obama conducted himself in office mm-hmm. and it's it's certainly in the back of people's minds as I'm projecting these images what we're going through today today right and it becomes very emotional for for people interesting uh, to to be at my presentation. Yeah. Well, that's one of the the wonders, I think, of photography anyway. You know, it kind of captures these incredible moments. And, you know, you're sitting there as an observer. You're sitting there as a chronicler of events. And, you know, everything from his interaction with young kids that would come to the Oval Office. Right. 
to you know his gentleness around his own children. Right. Um, uh, to you know the emotional. Uh, relationship that's visible with his wife to the fun that maybe he had, you know, in interacting yeah. with others as he as he crisscrossed the. Globe. One of my favorite shades mm-hmm. things, uh, uh, juxtapositions from Shade is uh, the president calling one of the investigations, maybe Mueller, a, a witch hunt, Pete, and then um, President Obama greeting on Halloween <laughs> a young woman dressed as a witch. It's just so. <laughs> It's so stark and, and, and uh, as you say, emotional. You, you just long for the days when you could feel proud of... Uh, yeah, I think, uh, my, I think my caption on that was a different kind of witch. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So now, uh, speaking of big events, uh, recently, Pete, you were in the news after the U.S. military raid that killed uh, the terrorist Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And the White House released a photo from the Situation Room, I, I, I guess, with the president, Mike Pence, and several of the generals that, to many, uh, appeared like a staged photo, the president and others looking directly at the camera. And this, of course, was in contrast to your iconic photo of President Obama, Secretary Clinton, and others from the Situation Room back in 2011 reacting in real time to the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. So, uh, uh, this is what prompted me to want to ask you to come on the crux. Uh, we've been talking about it for a long time, getting you on the program. But why did you feel compelled to point out the differences in in those two photos? I never used the word staged. Okay. People put that word in my mouth. Okay. Um, I I do think it was posed. Okay. It it looks posed yes. to me. And and when I originally saw the photo. Um, I, you know, one of the first things I did was download it to Photoshop so that I could open up the information embedded in the file to see what time the photo was taken. And it was taken at 5.05 or 5.06 p.m. So afterwards. Um, well, originally, the initial reporting was that the raid had begun at 3.30. Um, and I uh, mistakenly posted something on Twitter about that, mm-hmm. which you know, is a, is a lesson in get two sources. <laughs> right, <exactly. laughs> don't rely don't don't rely on one source. And uh, within an hour, I had uh, corrected myself because both the New York Times and, and the Washington Post reported that the helicopters had left Iraq around 5 p.m. Washington time and arrived in Syria um, at 6:10 p.m. Okay. Washington time. So that means this picture was taken an hour before the raid mm, started. Yes, right. Mm. Yes, the helicopters were en route, but you know there there was no raid taking place until after six ten p.m. because the helicopters di- didn't land until mm-hmm. six ten p.m. at the compound. So the raid started you know sometime after six ten p.m. and this picture was taken at five oh six p.m. Where are the pictures from the of, of them watching the raid? The raid, right. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to see. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we can't fool people by fabricating what the picture is about. Yes. Right. You know, this is history. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to see a picture of, you know, a post picture of who is going to be in the room while the raid was taking place. I want to see a picture <laughs> while the raid's taking place. Exactly. Of, yeah. Which is what you your know, picture shows. So why, yeah. the question I have is why did they take this approach of what appears to be a posed photo mm-hmm. in the Situation Room? Why did they choose to release that photograph mm-hmm. and not one of them actually watching the raid? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, I take <laughs> Trump at his word that, that he watched the raid. But why aren't we seeing a picture of it? Exactly. Was a picture yeah. not made? Were there no pictures? Yeah. Or um, or is or, this is this know, the best photo yeah. of the president? And they decided he looked the best in this. Photo. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I just think it's misleading to tell people to release a photo photograph like that and tell people he's watching the raid because yeah he, he couldn't have been watching the raid in that photo yeah because it was taken an hour before the raid started actually well so. you know it, it raises a lot of questions in, in another vein too is clearly uh, in 2011 and during the time that Obama was in the in the White House um, you had ready access uh, in in a way that maybe the current 
photographer doesn't. And I'm curious because, you know, the Reagan White House in many ways was also noted for trying to control uh, the image of, of of the president. And you had Michael Deaver and you had, uh, and even the president himself coming out of Hollywood. Baker, yeah. You know, uh, that they wanted to run kind of a tight ship. I'm just curious, was there any difference in working in the Reagan White House and the Obama White House when it came to your access to the president and your ability to act- actually capture the moment? Well, I mean, I guess I'll say that, um, you know, I didn't have a relationship with Reagan coming in, and I came in in the middle of the first term. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the circumstances were completely different. Did I have this, the same amount of access to Reagan that I had to President Obama? No. Mm-hmm. Did I have good access to President Reagan? Yes, especially during the second term. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have pictures during the Iran-Contra crisis. Mm-hmm. Now, the and, and this is this is an important point. The main function, the primary function of the job as the official White House photographer, is to document the presidency for history. Right. Mm-hmm. Whether images are made public right away is is a completely separate. Mm-hmm. entity and that's really up to you know the white house press office or communications office mm-hmm. i was able to make pictures of reagan in some of these really tense mm-hmm. times iran contra uh, etc none of those pictures were made public mm-hmm. i mean they're all public now right yeah um but but they weren't made public at the time yeah so i want to give the current White House photographer, the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. If she, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a woman. woman. Yeah. If she is, if she is making images of these historic, you know, meetings, great. If they've chosen not to make them public, you know, that's their prerogative. Right. Right. The question that I have is, is she making these images for history? And that yeah. I don't know. I yeah. just don't have any inside knowledge. Yeah. Well, that also brings up a point. I mean, you've got kind of a careful balance in, in this role, right? On one level, or on one hand, you're recording history. Uh, on the other, you also are serving a client, and that client happens to just happens to be the <laughs> president of the United States. And how do you kind of balance that while at the same time you're there, you're a photojournalist? And my guess is that having that journalist mindset uh, in your job also prompted you to want to be able to take certain pictures and to record history in a particular way. So how did you operate through that balance? I don't think my client was President of the United States. I think my client was the American people. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm there for the American people, not for Mm-hmm. President Obama. Mm-hmm. If you're a photojournalist and um, you're working on a, a really intimate story, uh, it's it's a very similar situation where you have to establish a rapport with your subject, mm-hmm. and you have to get your subject to trust you, and you're going to make pictures that maybe are you know uncomfortable to <laughs> yeah. both the photographer and the subject. Yeah, uh, but you care you carry on. And, you know, so, so that was sort of my same approach with President Obama. I think he understood, I know he understood the yeah. value of having uh, someone record his presidency. And, yes, in due time, every image is made public. But at the same time, if there was some, I, I mean, I can't even think of an example, but if there was some image that was so sensitive mm. that the the White House didn't, want to make public they didn't you know they wouldn't make it public and so there's some solace in that i think mm-hmm. for him right mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah yeah i love the way you put it um i read somewhere pete that you're creating a visual archive for history yeah and, and i think that's exactly right and and i hadn't really thought about it you know what the president versus the public as your client i hadn't thought about it that way but that's really true and yeah. and throughout history presidents have some more than others have wanted to preserve their their papers, their yeah. legacy. I mean, George Washington had a bunch of secretaries following him around <laughs> to copy his letters and that kind of yeah. thing. So it's uh, 
you know, like right now, you could go to the Reagan Library, actually online, and see every single picture I ever made while I was wow. there. Wow. I mean, all the all the proof sheets, you know, this is in the days of film, all the proof sheets are there for, you know, everybody to see now. And that same thing will happen with the Obama administration. And, you know, and, and ones that are, when I say sensitive, I'm talking about situations where, you know, like after a uh, tragedy like Newtown, right. he's yeah. meeting privately with families, meeting with wounded warriors, mm-hmm. which he did every three months at, at Walter Reed Hospital. Mm-hmm. 95%, 98% of those images have never been made public. Right. You know, just in, to respecting privacy. Protect. And so on. Yeah. yeah. But but eventually all of those, too, will be made public. Every picture that I made the day of the bin Laden raid, I shot a thousand photos that day. Wow. And a hundred, I think a little over a hundred um, in the room while while they were watching the raid. You know, wow. eventually people will be able to see all those images. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the that's whole amazing. point yeah. of my job yeah is yeah. is is, is, to, is to well and it's such an amazing job and a unique job I, I can't imagine that when you were a student at bu that you said this is the job i want <laughs> what i want to know is 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 i'm just kind of curious how, how do you get a job as the official white house photographer well i mean you get lucky i got <laughs> lucky um you know twice i mean with 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 uh i mean you mentioned in the intro that i was working for the Chicago Tribune, uh, I was based in D.C., um, and I just happened to be in that job when uh, Barack Obama was elected to the Senate. Um, and so it was natural that I was assigned to, to do a project on his first year in the Senate, and that's how I got to meet him, know him, be in his personal space, and he got to know me professionally. And, you know, that, so that you can't, like, predict how those things are going to go. Yeah. And there's no, like, here's how you become a White House photographer. It's like kind of winning the lo- the lottery. I mean, you can't, there's no, I, I mean, I don't know that, <laughs> how it's, it's, it's hard to do. Yeah. It's just like, I, I got lucky, I admit it. And, you're, and you, one of your books is, obviously, was His Rise to Power. Right, Pete? Is, am I remembering that correctly? Um, yeah, yeah. So when I, when I, when I was with the Tribune, I photographed him a lot. I went to, I think, six countries with him. And then as, as he was about to uh, garner the, the nomination for president, um, I put together a, 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 a book called The Rise of Barack Obama. Yeah, quite compelling. So I want to uh, change directions just a little bit here quickly. So we're such a visual society today, and I think that's why your images are, are you know, so impactful um, stills, video, graphics, whatever. It, it, Mike and I are communicators, so we're, we study these kinds of things. But we also live in a time where um, it's easy to um, fake some of these things, um, and both, particularly in videos these days, deep fake videos you've probably heard, and, and other kinds of things, even with stills. Um, I was reading in, in the Atlantic, Franklin Four said, we, we will shortly live in a world where our eyes routinely deceive us. Put differently, we're not so far from the collapse of reality. So, uh, Pete, I just think it's an incredibly interesting subject for someone who has dedicated his life to the sort of memorialization of reality. W- what's your thoughts about where we're going on this, and can we do anything about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's dangerous. I think it's especially dangerous when the President of the United States, in a couple instances, has has retweeted fake videos. Right. Um, and that, you know, that's just, that's dangerous. Um, I mean, I don't know what the answer to it is. I mean, the White House themselves have uh, doctored photos. Yes. Um, and videos. And, 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 it, and videos. They, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know that they themselves have doctored videos. Oh, they re- that's they, right. They, they retweeted they, it, you know, or redistributed they it. They retweeted a Pelosi, you know, fake video. Right. But they've doctored photos, and it's it's been the, <laughs> they 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 posted photos. They posted a couple of photos on uh, on their Flickr website, but then reused them in Facebook ads and things like that, where you could see the the, the, the where they doctored the photos, where mm-hmm. they like made Trump's fingers longer and his <laughs> waist 
smaller, and and you you can. So they sort of did it to themselves. They posted the undoctored photo on Flickr, and then they doctored it and posted it that way on Facebook. And you can sort of see where they've doctored it. So you know, it's just it's dangerous. I to me that would call into question every picture they ever put out. Now, once you lose people by by putting something fake out, then I don't know how you can know for sure that any of um, the work is, is anything real. else is real yeah, yeah yeah no i think it's dangerous and i and i i don't understand it, how we can continue to let this happen i mean the 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 it's it's been you know if you read the Mueller report which i which i did um you know clearly russia got fake news stories up about hillary clinton and donald trump in a positive way and got them posted on Facebook by using websites that seem to be legitimate. But we're and fact, yeah. so and they're gonna try to do this again where they're gonna they're gonna mess with our minds by posting fake stuff. You know, it's scary actually. So along those lines, so what's next for you? Your 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 book tour, I I take it is coming to a bit of an end. Are you gonna be more visibly active? Pete, given uh, your feelings um, about what's going on in the country during the next year as we head into the 2020 presidential campaign? What are you thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I'll continue to... I I already have some speaking uh, dates lined up that are not really tied to um, the book tour. I'm speaking at the African American Museum in December in D.C. I'm speaking at Carnegie Hall in uh, the end of February along with... um, the other people on the docket for that event are George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and Doris Kearns Goodwin. Wow, <laughs> great. <laughs> Somehow I got locked in. With I may the, have to come to that, Pete. That yeah. sounds pretty good. That's, yeah. that's as they say in the South, tall um, cotton. It's, <laughs> it's, it's something that's put together by the History Channel. Um, oh, great. I, I guess it's an all-day or half-day event. So I'll, I'll be speaking out um, like that. I mean, I will be... Do it, you know, I now live in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, and Wisconsin will be a crucial state mm-hmm. in, the, in the presidential election. Yeah, and so um, I'll, I'll be photographing in in Wisconsin. I actually haven't really defined my project yet, but I've been talking to some folks about um, you know what I can do uh, to, to you know to photograph what's going on at the grassroots level and when. Oh, cool. Um, the nominees uh, mm-hmm. come, you know, because once once there is a Democratic nominee, mm-hmm. I bet you'll see him in Wisconsin at least a dozen times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> next year, or maybe even maybe even more. Exactly. Um, I may even try to go to a Trump rally, although I'm a little worried that I'd get recognized. And um, <laughs> well, wow. that could be that's a real you know, thing. Maybe not. That, a, no, it is a real thing, and, yeah. it, and and it may be not the smartest thing to do. I mean, I just sort of want to, I think just as a photojournalist, I'm just curious as to, you know, what those rallies are like um, and, 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 and would, you know, would love to attend one as a, as a photojournalist. But I, again, I'd be a little concerned about my own safety, to yeah, be honest with you. Sounds right. So as we wrap up here, Pete, so you're a Massachusetts native, uh, I believe. How did you end up at, at BU? was at best an average high school student <laughs> and um i you know i wanted to go to college uh, i applied to bu northeastern and uh umass and i remember my guidance counselor telling me he goes well you you, you might get into umass you might get into northeastern you're you're never going to get into bu with your with your grades and your sat scores so i wouldn't bother you know applying you know maybe it costs who knows what the application fee was back then, $5 or something like that. But so he told me not to apply, and I, you know, I applied anyway. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I got into BU, but not Northeastern or not UMass. Huh. And so, you know, that's why I went to BU. And I guess, I mean, I wrote, hand-wrote an essay on why I wanted to become a sports writer <laughs> um, and that Boston was the place to do it. Uh, that worked out pretty well um, for you. Yeah, that worked out pretty well. I never became a sports writer, but you know, in my junior year at BU, I took a, a photography class, and that was sort of what launched me on this path. 
terrific. That's great. So, so I'm really curious from more of a uh, technology or technical side, what kind of camera did you actually use to capture that memorable moment in the Situation Room in 2011? You know, I, I, I should joke and say it was my iPhone, but um, <laughs> when I started at the White House in 2009, mm-hmm. I had to make a decision on what equipment to get for myself and yeah. for my staff. And at the time, the Canon 5D system was the quietest camera. Oh, sure. I mean, I don't think there was, there was um, you know, Nikon had great equipment. It wasn't it wasn't that the you know the Canon was so much better. It, right. was, it was so much quieter. Yeah. So I think by the time 2011 rolled around, I think we were using still using the Canon 5D Mark II. It may have been the Mark III. I just don't remember. Uh-huh. No, it was the Mark II. It was for sure the. It was the Mark II. Yeah. And so I was using that camera and. I think for that particular image, I used just the 35 millimeter lens. Well, it's also interesting because earlier you were talking about in the Reagan years, and you're talking about proof sheets and whatnot. I'd be curious as to what your transition from uh, starting in film to shifting in digital, what that was like for you, and, and what kinds of decisions got made as you shifted from one to the other. Well, at the, t- at the time, I was working for the Tribune, and they had made the decision to go digital mm-hmm. in uh, 2000. I mean, I mean, I remember they shipped me, uh, I, I think it was a Nikon D, D1 or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And they shipped me the cameras uh, either the end of 99 or early 2000. And as I was flying up to cover the New Hampshire primary, I was reading the manual on the plane. <laughs> and I remember the night of the primary, there was something that was, I, I couldn't figure something out. I remember calling the office, asking for a tech guy saying, how do I, how do I switch the flash off or something? I don't even remember what it was. Because, <laughs> um, you know, the, there's all this menu system that you have mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. you know, have like a technology degree or something to figure out. But I mean, one of the things that helped me is before I started at the Tribune, I, I was uh, freelancing and did a lot of work for National Geographic and had mm-hmm. to shoot slide film, yeah. transparency film, which is very unforgiving right. in terms of your exposure. And so it, it, it became discipline. I became very disciplined mm-hmm. about uh, getting the best exposure mm-hmm. for my transparency film. Mm-hmm. And um, with with those early digital cameras, that was extremely important to get your exposure right on. It wasn't like mm. fi- like negative film where you know you could you could be off by a you know a stop a stop sort of like yeah a stop like the only photographers will understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> but you, your your exposure was more. Uh, forgiving, where you could mess up a little bit and still salvage an image just fine. But with digital, if your exposure was was not on the money, um, your file was not that good. So mm-hmm. that helped me in terms of making the transition to digital, where I didn't have as much trouble as some of my other friends who yeah. <laughs> maybe weren't as disciplined about exposure. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's your equipment of choice today? Yeah, I'm still using the Canon. I, I upgraded when I left the White House. I had to buy all new gear because my personal gear was, you know, 10 years old. Yeah. Um, so I upgraded to the the five the Canon 5D Mark IV. That's what mm-hmm. I have now. Yeah. And then I also have, you know, I'm here out, out here in California uh, to speak tonight. And when I travel like that, I'm not on assignment. I, I carry a Fuji X-Pro. Mm-hmm. Two, which is a is a small mirrorless camera, and it's but it creates you know really good files. So it, it's small, so I just kind of throw that in my bag. Nice. Um, so do you should yeah. still shoot film? No, I haven't shot film for gosh, probably like twenty years. Wow. wow. Um, I still have film cameras that yeah. at, at <laughs> home. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I have both both one. I, I may have a couple of. Rolly flexes. I've got a Hasselblad. I've got a Mia. I've got. I think I got an 
actually, I think I have like two Nikon film cameras, a Leica film camera. Wow. Um, and it may be that I do an I, I do a, a project in in film. Mm-hmm. Um, but the you know the digital files are so good now, and it's easy to convert to black and white if you want. So there has to be a reason to to shoot film. It's a little bit different look with the grain and yeah. things yes. like that. But it, it, what what do you end up doing if you do shoot film? You end up scanning it digitally, right? Right. You know, so so your usability so it's so much easier. Yeah. Well, listen, Pete, this has been fascinating. Thank you for taking the time to do it. We want to make sure that people know how to get uh, your books um, and the latest uh, in soft cover shade, a tale of two presidents is available on Amazon, and I would encourage people. And to- I, I also want to give there. There are a lot of great independent bookstores across the country. Oh, they usually sponsor. They usually sponsor my talks, and so I would encourage people. Yes, you can get things at Amazon, but go to a bookstore. Yeah, nice, good one. Not just not just to find my book, but yeah. to, to peruse other books. And and your website, PeteSouza.com, I'd encourage folks to go there. Uh, to find out more about yeah, dates the, yeah, for Pete there's, speaking. There's links, links to my books, to how to get my books, but also um, for my upcoming events, too. There's, uh, I try to keep that up to date. Yeah, you do a good job. It's, uh, it's a great site. Well, listen, uh, from BU and, and the studio here, Pete, thanks, uh, thanks for being a, a guest on The Crux, and uh, good luck with, uh, with everything you're doing. Thanks, Pete. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.